Hi, I'm Sarah Rubenstein from United Way of Greater LA. I'm delighted to welcome you to today's discussion, What Will It Take to End Homelessness in LA? We are proud to be partnering with Zocalo Public Square to present this conversation. Everyone has a role to play in ending homelessness and ensuring that every neighborhood in LA has safe, affordable, and supportive housing. Through our Home for Good and Everyone In initiatives, United Way works to unify the community around the vision of ending homelessness in LA County. We work with diverse, multi-sector coalitions to test and scale the most transformative and equitable solutions. And we are committed to ensuring that community members impacted by housing insecurity and homelessness are authentically engaged in the development of those solutions. To learn more about our work, please visit us at homeforgoodla.org. Thank you again for joining us. You're in for a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Sarah. I'm Miguel Santana, Chair of the Committee for Greater Los Angeles. We are a group of civic leaders working to create a more equitable and inclusive Los Angeles and prioritize our county's most marginalized communities. We are so delighted to be partnering with the United Way and Socalo Public Square to present tonight's event. And thank you, each of you, for joining us. I am pleased to introduce our moderator for the conversation, Anna Scott. Anna is a journalist and a reporter for KCRW who focuses on housing and homelessness in Los Angeles. She regularly reports on homelessness for NPR's national programs and for other publications. Anna, thank you so much for guiding this essential discussion tonight. Over to you. Thank you, Miguel, and thank you to Sarah. Hi, everybody who's joining us virtually, and welcome to tonight's event, What Will It Take to End Homelessness in LA? Thank you to Zocalo Public Square, United Way, and the Committee for Greater LA for presenting this conversation. Tonight's panelists have a lot of experience working to end homelessness and a variety of perspectives on the issue. I'm really excited to introduce them. Sarah Dussault is a member of the commission that oversees the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, which is the main agency that runs homelessness programs for the city and the county. Since 2015, she's held various roles on that commission, including chair, and she previous, previously served as chief of staff to LA City Council member David Rue. Carter Hughley is the Director of Homelessness Initiatives at the United Way of Greater Los Angeles, which is a large nonprofit that works on solving homelessness and poverty. Before that, he was a Senior Advisor at the DC Department of Human Services. Janie Roundtree is the Founding Executive Director of the California Policy Lab at UCLA, which brings together experts from the University of California with policymakers to solve social issues, including homelessness. Jamar Wilson is the Vice President and Southern California Market Leader at Enterprise Community Partners, a national nonprofit that works on housing affordability in a variety of ways, from policy advocacy to operating affordable housing projects. And Sean Pleasance graduated from Yale with a degree in economics and is a former small business entrepreneur with multiple Wall Street banking jobs. He was unhoused in Los Angeles for 10 years and is now an advocate for those without homes. Thank you all for being here tonight. And Sean, I wanna begin with you. Um, for this conversation, I wanna start at the ground level talking about how LA could bring more people in from the streets with the resources that it has now. And then gradually as the conversation goes on, the plan is to zoom out and talk about bigger and bigger picture solutions to homelessness. So I know this is a big ask, but Sean, I was hoping you could give 
the mini version just in, in two or three minutes of your journey. And I know it's, it's a lot from how you went from being housed uh, to unhoused and then now housed again. And then, and then from that, I have a follow-up question, but I'll just start with that. Can you just tell us a little about your experience? Okay, I, I will do my best here. Um, I've, I've thought uh, long and hard about how to frame this narrative. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's my journey through homelessness. Um, it's a complex narrative, um, but so is life. Um, and, and before I start with the story, why don't I start with the good? Um, you know, at this point, I've been housed for one year. Um, I've got 584 days of, of sobriety, um, including cigarettes and, and, uh, and coffee. Um, I'm working as an advocate to try to help others conquer the issues that I had trouble conquering myself. Um, my story began about 2008. And um, I'd been having, I, I guess, a charmed life, so to speak. You know, I, gr I graduated from Yale. I had to work in Wall Street. I had my own business. Um, but at that time, I found out that my mom uh, had colon cancer and didn't have long to live. Also, in that same, at that same time, um, my business failed. And I found myself uh, living out of my car um, in denial that I was homeless. Um, you know, spending time at different friends' houses, couch surfing, um, you know, uh, spending nights uh, parked outside of uh, familiar places. And this, this went on. Time passed. Time, a lot of time passed. Um, next thing you know, I, we lost a car and um, I finally had to surrender and realize that I was indeed homeless. Um, and it's something I never imagined that could possibly happen to me. And there I was um, suddenly in the situation where I'm actually live on the street, having to deal with life's problems every day, not once a month. Um, most people have to figure out, you know, what, what rent once a month, groceries once a month, um, what, you know, what they're going to be doing and so forth. Every single day I had to make sure where I was going to be living, find food, find water. I had to uh, find resources such as uh, places to use the restroom. I had to secure, secure safety to make sure I had a safe place. Um, and, and this is every single day would change. Um, it's a very exhausting existence to have, one that keeps you from even being able to look forward at, or have any hope. Um, I, I had made seven or eight, actually I made eight attempts to get off the street. It was the, on the, just to give you some idea of some of the things that went wrong, on the seventh attempt, um, my caseworker was, was arrested for Section 8 fraud. Um, and each time you have these types of failures, and in my life, each, each, at each, each one of these junctures, my hope was dashed. My dreams were crushed. Um, you know, the, the promise of me finding a way out, working with a particular caseworker or, or an agency, and suddenly to be dropped into, into nothingness. Um, it's, it's very disappointing and, and it's very disruptive. Um, so once again, I gave up again. Um, it was through the grace of God, in my case, um, I think that uh, I, I was happened upon by some angels. Um, CNN broke the story and suddenly um, my tragedy became national news. Um, I wasn't overjoyed and as most people would have, would have thought. I was ashamed, I was embarrassed. I, was, I felt that I had uh, exposed all of my friends and family, colleagues, classmates to, to the scourge that was me. I was the failure and suddenly I it, was, it had been put out there. Um, fortunately, others cared enough about me to do something. 
And instead of me being told what to do, someone came to me and asked me what I needed. And that changed everything. Yeah, um, can I, I'm sorry for jumping in, but, um, but this gets to the question you know, that, that I wanted to ask you because I had read about your story a bit before this event. And I was really struck by the fact that it was a regular person, not a professional, but somebody that had known you from school who saw the CNN report, who ultimately came out and, and built up trust and um, had a lot to do with helping you get off the street. And so uh, I was wondering if, you know, what, what would have been more helpful to you from the professionals that you did interact with up to that point, the, you know, nonprofit or government entities, what could great, they have done better? Great, great question. Um, um, what Kim Hirschman did for me was, first of all, she asked me what I needed. Second of all, she developed trust. Um, your trust has been destroyed when you're on the street as, as a human being. There's just, you, you have no confidence on it with anything. Um, uh, unlike a professional that would come out from one of the agencies who maybe uh, sees you for one of three purposes, either for outreach, either for a CES, or, or, or they come out for, for, to offer a, a housing in a, in a, in a shelter, um, she came out just to get to know who I was, just to go what I, get to know what I needed. Um, and and we, we formed this trust and she would come out um, two, three times a week. And once she formed that trust, I was willing to accept the help she had to offer. Um, just, only and, in the interest of time. Oh, I just wanted to pause you there because I do want to bring in just on that note, um, Sarah, you know, what, what Sean is talking about is, is something I've seen in my, my work as well. Um, oftentimes street outreach that, that is inconsistent or doesn't come with concrete offers, not because the people coming out are not skilled or empathetic or anything like that. Oftentimes they just seem to have many people that they're working with and it's a matter of the resources at their disposal. So, um, you know, as one of the people who oversees LASO, which in turn oversees a lot of the street outreach that goes on in the city and the county, um, as you listen to Sean and yeah, are there things that uh, LASA could do better, is doing better um, in terms of making that street outreach more effective? Uh, absolutely. And and both the city and the county are interested in how we make outreach more effective and using. And, and just to be clear, LASA does provide some direct outreach, but then there's also intensive case management that's handled through Department of Mental Health or through DHS um, Department of Health Services. And then in addition, there are many service providers who are also um, providing outreach. And, um, you know, the, the work over the last few years has been trying to create that coordinated system. But at time and time again, what I'm trying to do, whether it's through my work on the Greater LA Committee or my work on the commission, is to bring the experiences of lived expertise to the forefront, because it, it really is real easy to design a program that on paper looks amazing. But if we don't have that real life experience at the forefront in the design process, um, it, it just, it, it, it can easily not be as effective as it could be. Um, I, uh, I try to help my brother who is suffering from mental um, health issues and homelessness and is currently unhoused at this moment. And um, it, it is clear to me that those personal experiences and when you have that firsthand experience, 
you're able to really understand what it means to ask someone what they need, as Sean was just describing, which um, is is really a, a more complicated ask than it sounds. I mean, to really meet someone where they're at um, and to really help them reestablish hope and reestablish trust is a big deal. So yes, we are working on reforms, um, but we have to do more. And that really centers on making sure lived expertise is at the forefront of both design and execution. I want to open it up to everyone to just jump in. Um, you know, what holes do you guys see in particular with, you mentioned um, your brother is dealing with mental health issues and when it comes to mental health services or um, addiction treatment services, which not everybody needs, but some people certainly do. Um, I'm curious, what holes are there in our current system for people who need that help in particular? And are there ways to, to fill those holes? And I could chime in here first. Um, and thank you both for sharing your wisdom and your personal experiences. I know that's not easy to do. Really appreciate it. Um, we, as the introduction uh, to my role may have indicated, we do research at the California Policy Lab. So just wanted to offer one basic fact and then I think answer your question around gaps. We, we took a look at everyone enrolled in street outreach services for a year and linked data to clinical mental health diagnoses and substance use disorder diagnoses. And 30% of street outreach participants have one or the other, either a serious mental illness or a substance use disorder, and about 10% have both. Um, and I think the point is, you know, you could argue over what's the size, but the needs of people are, are very differentiated, right? There, there, there are a lot of different kinds of people who are experiencing homelessness. And when you run big programs, you it's easier to try to think of people in one category. You know, everyone needs housing or everyone needs, um, you know, as type of outreach. When in fact, if you're really meeting where, meeting people where they are, you're going to hear about a lot of different kinds of needs. And for that outreach to be credible, you've got to follow through. You have when you're listening and you're hearing what the person needs, you've got to be able to respond with something to offer them. And I think that's to me, the main challenge for street outreach workers, they want to be credible and they want to follow through and we don't have the full spectrum of resources that are needed, I think, for people who are on the street. And to be more specific, I think we're all aware that there's a housing gap. You know, we need permanent housing for people. That's the ultimate goal. There's also a shortage, I think, of high quality interim housing, particularly interim housing that is harm reduction or specific for people who are suffering from substance use disorder. And there are gaps in the in clinical intervention. So there's a resource called board and care for people who are suffering from serious mental illness who are not yet ready to be in a unit on their own. And those facilities are shrinking by the day. Um, they're closing due to structural issues around how you finance those. So um, I'll stop there, but I just wanted to make the point that this is about resources uh, ultimately. And once you establish, establish that trust, you've got to be able to follow through with a pretty wide range that meets people where they are. Um, might, might I chime in here? I, I, I think it's it's about how we use those resources. Um, the, uh, for, for example, um, you know, 
I was approached while, around the, while I was on the street by many different agencies that come out and I see a, a caseworker or outreach worker, and then you don't see them again. Um, and, and the claim is always that, you know, because people are moving around on the street, it's hard to, get, to stay in touch with them. Well, I stayed in the same spot for six years. And, and I still had the problem with them not always coming back. Um, so follow through is a really important issue. Um, I, I think we need to raise the bar. I think we need to, to look at really re-examine uh, the way we do things. Right now, people have a certain caseload of, of, of clients, which I feel is usually too large, but, but they shouldn't be able to take on another person until they have solved the problems of the people that they have in, in, under, their, under their care. Um, so if, if it's housing that, that they need, then, then you, you, know, you must find them housing. That's, that's the ultimate goal. That is what you're trying to do. Um, it's not just passing them on to another worker to, at an, with another agency. There's, there's a myriad of, of different fragmented systems that are very siloed, um, and, and one arm is doing exactly you know, what's contrary to another arm. Each congressional district has different policies. Um, what, today, Joe Biscano, um, you know, trying to reinstitute uh, you know, the, the no tents up between 6 a.m. And 9 p.m. policy. Well, I have I have vi severe visual problems. So when it's dark, it, it, it really was dangerous for me to be taking my trying to put my tent up in the dark every single day because of the time, you know, times that are that are required by law. And, and this is, you know, and this is motivated by NIMBYism, but but the the it creates real problems for people on the street. There are a lot of us who have disabilities who are, who are homeless. Um, where's the ACLU on all of these issues? Because is it really fair to require someone with disabilities to try to do these things in the dark and and all through winter, that was a real problem for me. It's unsafe and 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 it's difficult and and it's cold. I, I you know during the, some of these times, I I you know you hear that um, uh, every day five people die you know while while homeless. Um, well, I had four times while I was homeless that I nearly died. You know, two two from from uh, pneumonia, uh, once from uh, food poisoning, and another time when I got stabbed in the back of the neck with a screwdriver. It's a very dangerous place. Our goal should be to get people off the street as quickly as possible. And someone needs to create clear pathways. Um, if you ask someone, how do you get someone off the street, or this question we're talking about today, it's it's the answers you'll get sound like an astrological uh, uh, forecast or something. Um, and you know, and it's different for every person you ask, and it shouldn't be that way. There should be just, just like if a veteran has a problem, they go to the Veterans Administration. They know what to do. Well, if someone's homeless, what do you do? Nobody seems to know. And, 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 and we need to stop the flow of homelessness to begin with. The housing insecurity is a real issue. Um, there's so many people falling out of housing at a rate faster, much faster than we are housing people in that pool, the huge pool of 60,000 plus who are homeless, where we, are, we have a lot of bridge homes to nowhere and where people are languishing in interim housing. We've, we've built so much interim housing and so much temporary things, but that's not the goal. We're trying to permanently fix people's lives. We need to take a holistic approach. We need to fix the whole person, their, their, their medical needs, their addiction needs, their, their housing needs. Um, you know, their, they may, have, may need mental health. Um, you know, in my case, I needed all of these things. And fortunately I had someone, a single person, who took the time and guided me through all these and got me to the other side. Um, each time you pass, you pass the baton, it gets fumbled. And that's what happened in, 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 my, in almost every case with me in the system. It always got fumbled. And I know I'm going on, I'll let you guys- uh, No, no, it's okay. Go. But you gave a good opening for the first kind of zoom out that I do want to take, you know, um, and, and I, I have a couple other street level questions, but, but you gave the perfect opening. And, you know, of course, uh, at the heart of this crisis, there's a severe lack of affordable housing, all kinds of affordable housing. And uh, Jamar, I, I was wondering, uh, since you're with an organization that 
works in affordable housing, operates it. Uh, can you talk about in, in LA, what, what are the biggest barriers to creating new affordable housing? And if you just picked one or two big ones, are there any potential solutions there that you see? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, first of all, uh, happy to be with you all. Uh, Sean, I wish I could uh, yield all of my time back to you because uh, you're nailing it. Uh, your experience is important. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that uh, stood out is that, you know, we talk about uh, the face of homelessness and people experiencing uh, homelessness. Uh, we, we, we shoot to people who are uh, experiencing mental illness, uh, you know, people with battling addiction, but we also know that the, the true face uh, includes more. It includes folks who are just working full time but don't have enough money to afford housing. And so this is where enterprise uh, comes in. Now, we are affordable housing nonprofit. We're focused on making sure that everyone in our community has an affordable place to live and that our community are stepping stones to more. So when we think about uh, ending homelessness, uh, we need to think beyond uh, getting people off the street right now, uh, beyond interim solutions. Uh, we're asking questions of how do we ensure that there's enough housing, the right mix of services to keep people housed over the long term. And to Sean's point also, what can we do to uh, prevent vulnerable people from falling into homelessness in the first place? Uh, that is a priority that is uh, important to us. And those two issues are things that uh, if we don't solve, uh, we won't be able to end homelessness in LA. Uh, as it relates to barriers to creating affordable housing, uh, there, there are plenty. I mean, we have uh, lack of funding. Uh, we have lack of, uh, you know, it, the exorbitant costs to build housing. Uh, you know, we're not looking at ways to uh, look at some of the smaller uh, land, landowners who have uh, who have property, who have who have units available. Uh, not enough vouchers available. Uh, so, as I mentioned, people who uh, aren't experiencing addiction or mental illness, but they work full time, but yet just can't afford a home. Uh, we're not doing anything to help mitigate that gap between what people earn and what they need to afford a, afford a home. And so we do advocate for uh, not just one set of uh, you know, solutions, but uh, a multitude, but there is no one solution, but uh, high cost and uh, barriers to uh, you know, that, that gap of uh, what people need to, uh, to stay in housing is something that we need to address. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, how do you, I mean, when you talk about the high cost, what are ways that that could come down? Uh, of course, there's different kinds of affordable housing. There's permanent supportive housing, which can take a long time to build and is for the neediest people. Not everyone needs that. It seems like there's also a lot in between market rate and, and deeply subsidized housing that we need and ideally would have more of, um, and please anyone feel free to jump in. Um, but, but since we're talking about solutions here tonight, you know, I happily I, jump in, you know, there's that? a lot of innovative ideas that are being put into practice right now, and they just need to be applied at scale. So we're short about 500,000 affordable units, and we need to just put up a whiteboard and figure out a plan to get there, um, which is going to lead to some of the governance conversations, which I think will come later. But the reality is, if, for example, the Hilda Solis Care First site, which was formerly called Bigness, um, which I had the honor to help work on with the supervisor, is at a cost of less than $200,000 per unit. The reason for the low cost was it was using CARES Act funding plus some uh, local funding. 
Um, so it had one funding source instead of the multiple layers of financing that are typically required, which require a much longer lead time. Um, and it was also done under the CEQA exemption, um, which um, was passed through the state uh, legislature. Pause you. That's, sure. <laughs> it's a little in the weeds if people aren't familiar. You're talking about environmental requirements that can be very, um, very time consuming, very complicated that it was exempt from. And, and I'm sorry, what is this project exactly for people who aren't familiar? Just So it's 232 units um, in sort of the Northern downtown LA area. And it was built by, um, it, it, at the direction of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Works um, through the direction of the supervisor there, Supervisor Hilda Solis. And, um, and it's being run by the Weingart Center. That's the service provider running the site. And it was built at less than $200,000 per unit in less than six months. We, we need a lot more housing like that. Um, I, I think we, we've also got a lot of untapped potential in the city. Um, while homeless, I stumbled into, you know, you learn about uh, abandoned buildings, you learn about um, buildings in receivership. And, and I, I saw somewhere, I, I don't know where the number's correct, but there's about this, that same number, half a million units in, uh, in receivership in the city without tenants. Um, I'm sure those, those landlords who own those buildings would love to have the city put someone in at, at any cost and to keep them afloat. Um, uh, you know, you've seen, I've seen a lot of talk about the tiny homes um, and that's been very distressing because, um, you know, with the city talking $130,000, $150,000 a unit and I'm watching television and they're showing how they can make one that's fully tricked out for 30 grand. And I'm going, why is it costing us five times the money to build the same, the same type of uh, building? Um, and so it, it is refreshing to hear that that project came in at such a low cost. So that, that is good. Um, I, I, I think a lot of the work that uh, LASA does would be much better if LASA had some authority to do something. And, and, and no offense, but, but LASA was created to solve this problem. And then once they come up with solutions, they're not allowed to do anything. They can make recommendations and that's it. And that's gotta be frustrating. And, and you know, both for, for the unhoused and for those at LASA. Um, you know, what, what, what is the city and the county thinking? Um, we've got the best minds. We've got, they've done some wonderful work. I've, I've actually seen some of it in, in a program where I uh, studied homelessness and careers for a cause. We actually uh, went through a lot of the research papers that LASA has created and, and some of them are wonderful, but they just go unread and, and, and they don't go ever get enacted. Nothing gets done. Um, so we need to find a way to get, you know, all of this wonderful thought and all this wonderful uh, potential here into actual action. Well, what about, you know, you, you do keep giving me good openings for new lines of questioning. Um, you know, I do, I do want to ask about um, governance and how it works in LA, because, you, you know, you talked about LASA um, not always having the authority to just go out and, and enact policies. Um, I mean, LASA, correct me if I'm wrong, answers to like a couple dozen bosses. And it seems in LA right now that there's a lot of policymakers and uh, different entities that have different views on what we should be doing about this homelessness crisis. Every city council office has its own ideas. Different law enforcement agencies sometimes have different ideas, county supervisors. There's a federal judge in the mix who has very problem. particular ideas. So there's no unified thought on it. There's no one's 
we're, we're, we've got too many hands in the pot and everyone is yeah. trying to do things from very different angles with, with very different uh, perspectives so, on it. And, and yeah, so how problem. can we fix it? How can we fix it? Because well, I know we are trying to stay focused well, we, on the solutions, but what would we help? Need stop, we need to stop wagging the dog by the tail. We, you know, we, we've, like I said, we have Lhasa. We have it. It needs to be given some power, empowered. We need to, we need to have some central um, agency or central control that, that can actually do something that is that is consistent across all congressional districts in this in, in, in this area. They shouldn't change, you know, just because I'm on one side of Wilster or the other side, there shouldn't be different uh, different benefits or, or different uh, policies regarding homelessness. I, it's still the same yeah. tent. I want to um, bring Carter in because I don't think we've heard from you at all yet. And I know the United Way does work on on policy and and talks to all these different players involved. Um, could could you speak to that governance issue and and what LA might do about it? Yeah, thank you. Um, I haven't said much because I feel like everybody's covering covering the territory well. Um, you know, I think for us, we we run a sort of a collective impact model where the the philosophy is we don't we don't live in a jurisdiction where everybody's got uh, where there's one entity that has singular power. We didn't get here from one one cause and we're not going to get out of it with just one solution. So I think for us, there are some good ideas on the table. Um, I know Sarah knows, is, is representing one of those uh, proposals. Um, for us, we want the best ideas to rise to the top and to resolve these questions, because I think the longer we hold open this governance question unresolved, the the you know, we're cutting ourselves short in our ability to get that unified effort that Sean's talking about. We've got to get focused and organized on a shared goal and drive progress across all of our power structures toward the same common agenda. And I don't know that we're ever going to live in Los Angeles where one entity has the authority to end poverty and reverse the housing crisis. But I am eager to get to a point where we are no longer creating additional governance proposals, we are starting to reconcile them and have the best of those ideas to rise to the top and resolve them so we can get, we can move forward and, and keep going. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like, oh, Sarah, were you about to say? I, I, I would just chime in. I mean, I, so as part of my work on the Committee for Greater LA, we just recently issued a report. We hired Rafe Sonnenschein, um, to, who's an expert in governance to analyze this system and his conclusions were identical to Sean's um, with the idea of how do we create that centering agency, um, you know, a governing board who's able to set the big collective goal of what I believe is, you know, functional zero for unhoused individuals. And um, that means, you know, it, it, homelessness would become something rare and uh, and could be easily fixed. Um, and that is only going to happen if we are able to drive collection collective action across agencies. Because as we touched on earlier, and um, Janie was mentioning in terms of the research that she's done, you know, 25 to 30 percent of people who are unhoused um, need access to mental health care. Um, and there isn't access to care. And there's, an, you know, within a, a, a larger percentage, people need access um, to substance use treatment. There's not access. And um, I, I do believe that we have designed an incredibly expensive system 
with bad outcomes. So I, it is a resource issue in terms of where we're placing resources, but it's $600 to house my brother in jail for a night. It's $60 for him to be in a crisis bed. So we're spending a good amount of money. It's just, we need to spend it in different ways. And we have been completely starved of resources for permanent housing. Those have been cut in the 75% range year over year, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican president. It's only recently that people are acknowledging this crisis of American homelessness and the need for substantial investments in both public housing and in um, vouchers or tenant-based or project-based vouchers. 75% of Americans who are low income and qualify for federal subsidies don't get them. And in Los Angeles, that means one in eight who qualify um, for housing actually get it. And so this sort of starving of those resources means that we have the largest unsheltered population in the United States. And it's not until we have a bird's eye view as well as you know an, an entity that has that ability to look across cross-sectional, um, look, look over at DMH, look at the fact that the boarding care crisis is pushing thousands of people into homelessness or either that or pushing thousands of people, displacing people into um, supportive housing units that could be utilized for others. So the, that is not transparent because we don't have that type of governance set up. Um, and a lot of reports have been done in addition to the report I mentioned. Um, there are about four reports that have just been released. And, you know, we agree with what Carter just said is now is the time for us to take action to really um, get going on some of these reforms so that we can um, move the ball forward. Yeah. And, and, and I've, seen the proposal from the committee for greater LA and, and you, you were talking about, um, you know, having a new entity, um, as they propose that would try to sort of corral and streamline all these different, um, fractured parts of the system that exist now. But, but I mean, if, if, if what they're suggesting happened, they wouldn't have budget power. They wouldn't have any, uh, real, policy making power. So I'm just wondering, I mean, you guys are all deep in this, you're in the trenches, you have the ears in some cases of elected officials. Are there just, I don't want to oversimplify things, but are there just basic concrete things that the city and the county could do to work better together? That's been an issue for a long time. And, um, and just with what they have now, just get on the same page a little bit more than they are currently. We've just gone through, I think, an, a, a credible example of stronger coordination between the city and the county and LASA by responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, only through us having a shared understanding of the danger that was posed to unhoused people in congregate settings were we able to stand up. I think it was 38 project room key sites at its peak. We're opening uh, project home key sites the level of coordination and sort of unity of effort that we just witnessed and all felt and experienced during the pandemic, I think is the kind of focusing energy that we are missing. So I think it's possible. It's just that an emergency and a crisis like a pandemic 
reminds you that you can coordinate, you know, you can bring it together and have a unified vision. We need to treat homelessness the same way. The, one of the challenges with doing that though, as, as Sean led with, you know, homelessness is a lot of things. And when you ask someone what they need and they tell you, it's gonna be different for different people and you need to believe them when they tell you. And you need to deliver, as Janie said, you need to deliver what it is that you promised. And I think one of the things that uh, thwarts our ability to have that unified sort of crisis vision is that we also know that all of our societal failures, the failure of our health system, the failure of our housing system, the failure of our behavioral health system, or the failure of systemic racism that lingers in our society, it all comes and manifests in homelessness. And so I think we've got to have that kind of unified effort that we had during the pandemic, but we've got to focus that energy on getting people safely inside um, and getting them housed. Yeah, it, it looks like um, just staying, you know, on the LA picture for another minute, um, we're, we're going to have a new mayor potentially sooner than we thought, maybe, um, but, but at least uh, next year, is there anything in particular? I know the mayor, of course, doesn't have, you know, unilateral control over this issue, but is an important figure in this. Are there things that you guys are, are looking for specifically from the next mayor of Los Angeles on homelessness? Anna, um, can I can I just respond to your question about what the city and the county, and I, I think this is responsive to your question too about the mayor specifically, could do to better coordinate? Because I, I want to make a point that I think touches on something Sean shared earlier, which is that we have we have to change the way people interact with the system and simplify it by using the insights of the people who have actually experienced homelessness in Los Angeles. We require people to understand four or five massive safety net programs and all of their criteria and all of the ways of getting enrolled. Um, you know, and case managers are funded and designed to help navigate, but as Sean said, and has been my experience in interviewing providers as well, it's not, it's not consistently the case that someone is gonna have one person assigned to them to help them understand that all. So I think a really simple, Thing to do is just try to step into the shoes of a person who would have to, to navigate all of this and make it easier for them to do that. You know, there should be one phone number to call. Um, you shouldn't have to you're, take it upon yourself to understand the contact information for social services, homeless services, mental health care, physical health care, your local clinic. Um, and while I don't think that's the intent, that is what's happening. And we should take a close look at that. There's, you know, a small slice of this. There are, there is funding for homelessness prevention. So these are resources for people who believe they are about to become homeless. And there's usually a short window of time to reach them to avoid that outcome. And it's incredibly complex to access those services. You have to know who to call, that there's no hotline, there's no centralized hotline in Los Angeles, like there is in some other cities. So, you know, I'll give you one more example. <laughs> We, to, to get into housing, you have to create a lot of documents. It's very time consuming. You have to document your income, your eligibility. Um, maybe there's specific things that you need to have or do for that unit because of how it's funded. There are, there's a lot of documentation that's already held by county agencies, particularly by the Department of Social Services when someone's enrolled in a program like CalFresh. If the governments work together, you could transfer all of that information with client consent and auto-populate a lot of the documentation for housing. Um, I'm just using that as one example of the kind of collaboration or coordination 
that I think would get prioritized if you prioritize the feedback of people with lived expertise in the system who are actually the victims of the lack of coordination. And I always like to emphasize that there's good intent because no one designs a system to be this complex. It just happens over time. And if you don't prioritize streamlining it, um, it never happens. Um, I've, okay. I've been alerted, oh, sorry, that we do have tons of audience questions. So okay. I wanna make sure we have time to get to those. And I really wanted to ask you guys one more really big picture question, which we probably could spend this whole hour talking about, but um, you know, we've been talking about this as a regional crisis, as a crisis in the county. A, a lot of the roots of LA's homelessness crisis do go up to the federal and level and are even sort of baked into our culture. Are there just some very fundamental systemic ways that we think about housing and treat housing that we need to change in order to actually solve homelessness or get to functional zero? Well, we've got a, as Sarah was mentioning, how few people actually get access to the housing subsidies that they are eligible for. And I think one of the things we've got to acknowledge at the federal level is that housing is a human right. Um, healthcare is a human right. And we've got to start putting our money where our, where our rights are <laughs> and, and, and delivering those rights at scale is something that I think the whole country would benefit from. And too many people who've been waiting too long, um, uh, you know, need deserve nothing less than that. Yes, absolutely. We're 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 talking about people here. It's a, it's a human problem. Um, it this this should be an emergency. This should be like a national emergency. This is this is a county and city emergency that we're having here. It should be treated just like a FEMA uh, event uh, that we're having going on here. Look at the numbers. Look, they're astounding. And we think and we don't even think we we've got half the half of it counted. Um, you know, uh, it's an access issue. Um, some of the points that Carter mentioned and Sarah mentioned, um, and, and Janie, as, as far as access to, say, medical care or to mental health issues, um, you know, and, and respectively trauma-informed care and, and harm reduction. But the example of what we did manage to do with COVID, um, that was probably the closest and the, and, and the only time many of those people had any form of, of medical access, period. Um, it, in my time on the street, the only times I was able to access the medical system was when there's a catastrophe, when, when I'm standing there with a screwdriver in the back of my neck, when I've got pneumonia and end up with a seven day, seven day hospital stay. Um, access, people don't have access to the most basic of needs. The rest of us probably get uh, checkups, you know, once or twice a year. Um, we, could, we could curtail a lot of the issues and problems that we have with people if, if people were ever to have, able to have preventative care like, like regular human beings. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go to some of the questions that are coming in because I'm seeing a lot of them in the chat right now and I wanna make sure we get to as many as possible. Uh, there's a couple of different questions about uh, about the city adopting a right to housing um, principle uh, or or overall policy. Uh, I I believe there's there's actually a proposal along those lines that's pending in city council from Mark Ridley Thomas as well that's still taking shape um, and being fleshed out. But uh, but a couple questions about that. Um, what is stopping LA, in, in your view, from adopting a right to housing policy now? And do you guys think that that would be helpful?
I mean, I, I can jump in. You know, part of the issue is the um, has been the lack of investment from the federal government. And so I think there may be some hesitation in thinking, well, if Los Angeles adopts a right to housing, what's going to happen in Pasadena? Um, you know, will residents just then go over to Los Angeles? Um, you know, how will that work with uh, neighboring jurisdictions? How does that work across the state? Um, and so I think those are some of the things that are um, being discussed. But I absolutely believe in a right to housing. And I think the concept of housing as infrastructure has been part of what has been holding us back. Um, and when you're asking, you know, what does the next mayor need to look at? I mean, I, I just think there needs to be a real understanding of how we got here in order to get out of this. And uh, the real understanding is that we've had tons of federal subsidies for all sorts of things, for um, mortgage uh, mortgages and uh, for homeowners and other um, things that this federal government has subsidized, but we have completely starved our public housing um, and that has had a real impact. Um, we've starved our access to mental health care and our access to basic health care. So I, I definitely believe in a right to housing. I think some of the challenge is thinking about, is that across the state? Is that across the region? Um, and how would we go about actually making that uh, a reality? Is there, are there any other cities that have successfully uh, made a big dent in this issue that we could look at as an example? I'm Jamar or Carter. I, I, I can give a few, but. The issue of uh, rights to housing? I was just uh, jumping to another question. It, it, are there any other cities that LA could look to as, as examples, cities that have made significant progress on homelessness. Maybe they're not in the United States. No, you know yeah. what I find in that, you know what I find in LA actually is I find that in LA, we are probably doing some of the most innovative stuff in the country. We're just not doing it at scale. So there are all the time I'm asked for examples of other cities that have figured it out and you'll find an example from another city. And then you'll also find an example in LA of that same thing happening but we're doing it as a pilot project in one council district or one supervisory district somewhere. And so I think the issue here is that we know what we need to do. We probably have the best examples of, of great practices here in this jurisdiction. We've got an issue of scale and we've got an issue of resource scarcity. Um, and our, our bold ideas are not always matched with bold money um, and bold scale that sort of matches those ideas. That's my two cents on that. I, and, and I would say, I, I strongly believe what, what Carter and, and what uh, Sarah just said, we, 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 we have the tools, we, we've, we have, we've done many of these pilots and, and so forth, but we don't make them to scale because we haven't made it a priority. And, and, and that's all there is to it. It's not a priority. Um, we need to make this a priority. Um, worrying about whether or not people from um, Orange County or from Pasadena or someone else will, will come over and take advantage of a system here that, that we have. Well, they should. I would. Who wouldn't? And, isn't it, it, and people are people. We move around. doesn't matter where they are. And if they come here, if we figure out a way to solve it, it doesn't matter where the people come from. Um, they're still human beings and they still need help. Um, and and we, until we change that mindset, we're going to have a problem. 
because we're going to be worried about, oh, we have something that works and someone, oh my God, they're from Santa Monica and they might come over here to LA and use our resources. You know, and I think, all, you know, they should, if we've got a better system, they'd be, they'd be stupid not to. Yeah, that actually goes to um, another question here from uh, somebody watching. Um, they asked, could, could you talk about, um, I guess several people have asked versions of this. Could you talk about the disconnect between the emergency reaction that we've seen to the pandemic when homelessness is, is a bigger health crisis? Yes, much bigger. <laughs> So I, I spent I spent a lot of time in emergency management in a previous uh, lifetime, um, and so I've it's been interesting to sort of watch in my in my today life working on homelessness, sort of seeing the struggles that we have, having that what we would call like incident command type response to homelessness, and comparing that with what happens when there's a tornado or a hurricane or a pandemic. Um, I think that one of the differences that I'm observing. Um, is that you know homelessness is really um, it's hard. It's you know, people are struggling with really challenging issues and they're struggling with them everywhere and they're struggling with them out on the street and people everywhere don't don't have the tools as as Janie said. It's really hard to know what to do. I have people all the time who are like, I don't know who to call, and so I think that there is a shared emergency that we also share a confusion about what to do because it's not clear how to go help the person that's in front of me. They can sit on webinars like this and hear like how we need a right to housing and how we need more housing and we need more vouchers. But I think that the, when they don't know how to help the person sitting outside their house or near, you know, when they're walking down their street, it leads to a lot of confusion about how, do, how am I involved in the whole of community response to this? And I think our answer so far has been say yes, say yes to housing, say yes to shelter, but we're also gonna have to make the system easier for them to understand how it works and how to activate it on behalf of people that they care about in order to fully get across the finish line on that unified unified picture. And, and, and on that note, I, I think um, a, a big part of the problem is people worry too much about how someone became homeless. Um, you know, and, and each and every story is unique. And, uh, you know, with, with a catastrophe like Katrina, we, you, you know, a storm came and it hit and you can understand and comprehend that. Um, you can't comprehend the dynamics of, of a family was broken from divorce and, and a mother lost her job and, and they were struggling and the kids, are, they can't afford daycare in school. That's hard to comprehend, but we need to stop worrying about it. It doesn't matter how they became homeless, they are. And we need to do something at that point um, and stop trying to figure out, you know, the, the, the if, when, and why, and all this stuff. It's, it, that's not the problem. The problem is that these people need somewhere to live that's safe, secure, and that can become home for them. Yeah, and that's exactly right. It does circle back with your other question, Anna, about cities who are doing this well. They're usually outside the United States. It's Singapore. It's Trieste, Italy. It's, you know, Finland. I mean, there are many places doing this well but they do exactly what Sean just said. They treat housing as infrastructure and they're just like, we have to make sure our people have housing, period. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, it's a completely matter of fact approach. Yeah. Well, and, and on, and then I, I wanna piggyback off that, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I say on, on another point, um, something that we can do, um, the people on this committee is, uh, or on this, on this call, we, we can look at um, developing best practices for, for how to care for the homeless. 
Um, it's it's done in such a hodgepodge, uh, you know, manner that each and every agency does something a little differently. Each county does something a little differently. Each city does something a little differently. There need to be some best practices on on just how we do things. You know, for example, just just something as simple as a shelter. A shelter is that which provides protection from the elements and from danger. Well, it needs to be more than that, you know, and we need to have some best practices telling us what that is. Uh, I have a question here specifically for Carter. You mentioned some forward thinking pilot programs that are happening, but just need to be scaled up. Do you have, can you go into more detail about some examples of that? Yeah, we, I mean, unarmed responses to to people in crisis is, a, is an example of where we were looking around for like what jurisdictions have already figured out how to have unarmed responses to people in crisis. And what we learned is that there's already several pilot projects happening in LA right now where people are thinking about not sending out an armed police officer, but sending out, you know, trained, you know, social workers with um, de-escalation skills and with the ability to understand and, and triage what's going on and to connect people to services. So there's pilots like that where you, once you go digging in another jurisdiction, you'll realize like, oh, that's probably being tried here. Um, but what we're not doing is putting the resources behind it uh, to scale it up to the level of crisis that we know people are, are experiencing. Hmm. Um, there's also a question here that Jamar, I think you might be able to speak to. Um, there is a suggestion uh, about what about a local joint powers authority that could act as a developer, joint power and owner of housing on state, county, and city-owned land. Um, as someone in the affordable housing sphere, just would love to hear you weigh in on that suggestion. Uh, well, I do believe that you know it's not uh, it's, it's common knowledge that there's a lot of public you know property that that's available that's unutilized, and that could be an opportunity to uh, you know respond to what the private sector is not providing. You know, look at public public property uh, as far as what joint authorities would come under to to make it happen. Lots of permutations there. Uh, as an affordable housing developer entity, you know we provide a lot of, of TA and support to organizations uh, and bring government jurisdictions together to actually problem solve and to figure these things out. Uh, I would, I, I would venture that we would be happy to engage around you know modeling what that could really look like because in Los Angeles city, in the city alone, uh, there's so much public land that is uh, unutilized. Um, and a lot of people are, are drawing more attention to it. Uh, a lot of people are talking about, uh, you know, diverse models for for housing, uh, such as through uh, land trust, uh, community land trust, or even public land trust, which probably is more applicable for uh, this property. And so that should be on the table. Uh, there's no one solution, but th that should be one solution that is actually important. Mm -hmm. um, there's a question here that that goes to, um, it seems, our where we began talking about street outreach. Um, Sean, maybe you could speak to this. Um, what should the approach be if uh, somebody refuses care or services? Um, service resistance or, or housing resistance. Um, you, you have to realize that um, when you're doing it, when someone's doing outreach, you're walking into someone's life at, at a random time period and you don't know what's going on. It may have nothing to do with the situation or what you're offering. Um, they may have just gotten, gotten robbed. They may not have eaten for a while. Maybe they slept you know, without any cover on you know, the night before. Um, you really don't know what issues they're going through. And, and uh, unless someone takes a trauma-informed approach, 
uh, you know, you, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to make headway. And sometimes it's just a matter of coming back at another time when it's better. If, if, if I were just to knock on your door at a random time and said, Hey, I'm here. Um, are, are you willing to move? Um, I'll give you five minutes to grab some things. Um, I'm, I'm not telling you where you're going. I can't describe what it looks like. And um, you have to decide right now. Um, are you going to go? Probably not. Um, so we have to, we have to keep all those things in mind. It takes a few times coming to talk to someone. You got to build trust. You have to build a relationship. Um, you know, before I before I got off the street, um, when Kim would come by and and each time it was the same thing. We we you know we had to trust her and that 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 uh, we were being led the right way. It's not something you you know. It doesn't matter what's being offered. I have to be ready to receive it. Um, and 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 that's just human nature. Yeah, um, Janie, maybe you could field this one. A lot of people are asking about um, how non-governmental entities like universities uh, or corporations or film production companies, tech companies, et cetera, how could, how could those entities be involved in helping to solve the crisis? Um, that's a great question. Those are a lot of different kinds of organizations. Um, let me just say one thing that's been on my mind that's responsive to that. So Sarah has talked about starving the funding for housing. And I just wanna be really clear about the cause, the main cause of homelessness in our region. 50 years ago, the state of California decided to not build housing to keep pace with population growth. And that decision has played out in zoning laws, land use regulations, environmental regulations, building codes, fees, permits, these layers and layers and layers of local and state red tape that make it very expensive, if not impossible, to build dense housing and affordable housing. We have a massive shortage of housing. It makes the cost of housing go up, and at the same time, average income has stagnated. So the average income that people are earning is not really increasing and your housing costs are increasing. And when you get to spending more than 30% of a person's income on housing, you can expect to see homelessness in your community. And in Los Angeles, we're over 50%. So my answer to what can corporations do, they carry a lot of weight. The tech industry has a lot of weight with elected officials, with uh, state, local, the county. And you know, one thing I firmly believe is that if people understood these state policies and when people are attempting to reform them, if they connected those decisions to our homelessness problem, we would have a lot more consensus around changing these things. What happens is that they come piecemeal and, and you're, you get confused. Is this an, why wouldn't I vote for an environmental regulation? Why wouldn't I wanna ensure appropriate amounts of parking? You know, the answer is you should be asking whether those things are contributing to our homelessness problem, if that's what you care about. And I think if big uh, influential stakeholders like corporations, universities and others understood that there are policy solutions that have to flow particularly from the state down we could maybe make progress, at least on educating people about the link between these things and our homelessness problem. Um, you know, and of course, we've seen major tech companies in California donate land that they have, commercial property that they own, but it's very complicated for them too to build housing for all the reasons that I've said. Um, not to say that that's not a good idea. Of course, any solution is, is welcome. Um, and then of course, I deeply believe that our universities have a lot of intellectual firepower to add data analysis and research. So documenting best practices, evaluating which programs work, holding ourselves to a higher standard, 
uh, leveraging data to make decisions. Those are all things that I think our university partners are, are trying to do, have been doing, and could do more of. Uh, Jamar, this is a question for you. How are organizations like yours successful in actually building housing? Can you talk a little about what it takes? The type of housing that we primarily support is uh, multifamily affordable, affordable housing uh, for uh, low-income families, low-income seniors, and uh, homeless veterans, and different populations. And so uh, we provide capital and technical assistance. And so a lot of our uh, community development partners are the ones who are the actual developers. We help bring debt and equity uh, to support those, those, those projects. They're often larger. Uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, 25 to 300 unit type, type properties. Um, we have been doing this for, for decades. And uh, one thing that we are, uh, we'll continue to do that. It's really important to us, but we're also putting a lot of attention towards preservation. Uh, there are just as many units that, that we're helping to uh, bring online that are uh, losing their affordability. And so uh, our charge is also to not just focus on production, but to also focus on preservation. But we have found success uh, with assisting uh, the local, local developers to uh, access property by providing them pre-development loan, the, the, the hardest dollars to, to, to reach uh, develop, developers, uh, that higher risk you know, money uh, to do speculative work, pre-development work. Uh, we also help them secure uh, other sources of finance. So, uh, that's been our, uh, our history. That's what we'll continue to be good at. Uh, we are faced with the same, our partners are faced with the same challenges that all developers are faced with. The cost of land, the cost to acquire land is the cost to acquire land, whether you're a nonprofit or a mission-driven developer or a for-profit. And so uh, we're subject to the same level of challenges in the permitting process uh, from the capital stack that is so, uh, you know, so daunting where uh, you may need half a dozen to, uh, to 10 different capital sources to bring a project to bear, all different deadlines and, and not a lot of coordination there. Uh, and so uh, the development process is uh, pretty similar to that of the, uh, you know, the coordinated entry system model where a lot of, dis lot of just disjointed, uh, well-meaning, but disjointed uh, you know, activities. And uh, we're trying to help uh, improve those uh, at the housing development level and also uh, at the CES level. Hmm. Um well, I see a question here that, that I think is a good final question um, that I'll just open up for all of you to weigh in on. Uh, I think it's probably it's fair to say there's agreement that there are many things LA could do better to alleviate this crisis, but um, is homelessness something that LA can manage or even end on its own or does it need to be addressed on a federal level? I mean, I'll go first. I don't think we're, any community is gonna get to functional zero as Sarah mentioned without strong partnerships at the local state and federal level. It's, it's foundational, I think, to, to that end state, but I'm optimistic that we, we have a better administration now that sees housing as infrastructure, as Sarah said. Um, so I do think it's possible to have that partnership. I think the, the caution that I have is this juxtaposition of like pursuing bold goals with big resources and plans, but also being credible because I think that people are exhausted with plans to end homelessness that don't result in a, a tangible impact. And so I think we've got to be, we've got to do both. We've got to say 
let's do big things and let's go big at, at hard problems. But I think we have to also be credible about what we're promising and the timeframes that we're promising it based on the resources that we actually have and don't have. So I think that's a, that's a tension that I think we struggle with in homeless services. I think we're in an extremely unique moment where we already have the federal government's interest. So, um, I, and back to my point about, you know, the next mayor needs to understand what brought us here. Um, it, look, the, the federal government, we made some huge mistakes in the Great Depression. We made some huge mistakes in the Great Recession um, where the, the drive for recovery was inequitable and created some of the mistakes that are winding, you know, ending up in homelessness now. So the the reason, you know, I'm for looking at governance reform and trying to get that bird's eye view is to make sure that we're maximizing what we're getting from the federal government. I found out today about resources, both for behavioral health and um, in-home care that have now been extended to people experiencing homelessness. I want to make sure we're getting a piece of that. So I I don't think it can be accomplished without the federal government, but they've pretty much already said they're there because this is integral to COVID recovery, period. And and as we've talked about today, we've seen what we can do. We, we, in our response to COVID-19, you know, within a matter of months, we housed thousands and thousands of people, around 8,000 people, which was 20% of our unsheltered population. Well, we just got to keep going. We've got to figure out collective action across sectors. We've got to figure out how we're cutting that red tape, making it way more easy to build housing through these innovative models at scale. Um, We've got to eliminate the paperwork uh, that Janie was describing. And we we have, we've made some progress. We have a universal housing application that just launched Um, in part because of things that Sean went through that I then brought back to the group and said, this can't happen again. You know, so we we are learning, but it's only going to work with, as we've said, you know, I think all of us here today with this bold, uh, putting bold at scale collective action on the table, treating it like an emergency, remembering every minute that, uh, you know, we're talking about human beings and their lives and um, and families and, you know, and and their families. You know, uh, I, you know, it it just kills me every day. And I really do think we can do this, but it's going to take a completely different approach. Um, well, we are at time. Uh, I don't want to keep everyone late. I know we could probably talk about about this for for many more many more hours. Um, I want to just thank all of you guys for participating tonight. Thanks to everybody who's tuned in. Thank you to Zocalo Public Square, to the United Way, and the Committee for Greater Los Angeles for presenting this conversation. This video will stay public online, and you'll be able to find a summary of the discussion, plus interviews with myself and all of the panelists who are here on Zocalo's website, zocalopublicsquare.org. If you liked this event, please do tune in to Zocalo's next event, which is this Thursday, June 17th at 6.30. It's called What Makes a Good Small Town? If you are on the go, you can listen to that on Zocalo's podcast and subscribe to the newsletter for updates. Thank you, everyone. Really appreciate everybody's time and have a wonderful evening. And I look forward to continuing this conversation in other venues.
Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Thank you.